NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's December. That means I got my reindeer out. I got some wrapping paper. I even got some sweatshirts behind me. And I'm visiting my parents in upstate New York. So I'm not in Connecticut, but I am still representing the Connecticut Writing Project. Happy December to all the writers, teachers, parents, students, and everyone else who happens to find themselves to our National Writing Project show. I'm Brian Ripley Crandall, and I direct the Connecticut Writing Project at Fairfield University. And this is The Right Time. It's a show that brings classroom educators and authors together to discuss writing, books, teaching, and life. Um, I'm thrilled once again to be here today with my co-host, Tanya Baker, out in California. Hi, Brian. I, there we go. I'm trying to advance slides and talk to you at the same time. I'm Tanya Baker. Uh, I am thrilled at the opportunity that Brian brought to us to co-host this show, um, The Right Time. We've been doing it all all pandemic, haven't we, Brian? And beyond. <laughs> a year ago, uh, just a little over a year ago now, Brian pitched the idea to us that we could get 50 writers to create short videos that celebrate the, the work of writing instructors across the country. A few months after we had this conversation, COVID came and a special friendship with, Rand with Penguin Random House Books. And we uh, made this series. When I asked who, white, who might we interview right before the holidays, Brian said, let's try to get Lamar Giles. And sure enough, he agreed. We're thrilled to have you, Lamar, and Kirsten Jacobs uh, this month's, as this month's featured guests. We welcome both of you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Brian and Tanya. And hi, Kirsten. Thank you. Hi. Hi. So there's a small story. There's always a story with the writers we bring <laughs> to the right time. I actually was lucky a couple of NCTEs ago um, to be seated next to Lamar Giles at a Penguin Random House middle school event um, and we had dinner. And it was ironic, well not ironic, I think it was strategic of Penguin Random House because I had used French Fresh Ink, an anthology of great stories the summer before um, with the Connecticut Writing Project. I had some advanced copies and we used all of those stories in our summer um, literacy labs. So the kids read the pieces and actually wrote like the writers in the pieces, which was wonderful. And so I quickly became a, a huge fan of Lamar Giles, his books, his leadership and assuring multiple voices are published to represent all readers in our classrooms and then most recently, I've gained a, a keen interest in platypuses, or is it platypi? I'm not sure, <laughs> all because of this author's creativity. Lamar Giles writes for teens and adults across multiple genres, with work appearing in numerous best of lists each and every year. He is the author of the acclaimed novels, Fake ID, Endangered, Overturned, Spin, The Last Day of Summer, Not So Pure and Simple, and the next one coming out, The Last Mirror on the Left, as well as numerous pieces of short fiction. He is a founding member of We Need Diverse Books and resides in Virginia with his wife. Woo woo, Lamar's in the house. Over <laughs> you, Tanya. And Kirsten Jacobs is also in the house. Kirsten is a middle school language arts teacher with the unique ability to fill a room and bring its members together in community and joy. She officially teaches middle school language arts, but unofficially teaches our students how to grow and develop into the best versions of themselves. She spends the rest of her time with her nose in a book, 
writing poetry and short stories and sipping pumpkin spice lattes. Ooh. Kirsten loves hanging out with her husband and son and singing to her heart's content, even if she doesn't know all the words to a song, which is better than what I do, which is know all the words, but not be able to sing at all. <laughs> <laughs> Kirsten, thank you so much. I'm very excited to turn the mic over to you and we'll start by having you introduce a possible writing topic for today. Hey guys, um, thank you guys so much for having, um, having us today. Um, I wanna get into the conversation with a little bit of writing. Um, so teachers, uh, parents, if you're at home uh, with your scholars, you may want to write into the conversation and start reflecting. Um, I want you to reflect on who um, you are as a reader, right? Um, why do you feel that it is important or even do you feel uh, that it's important for books to have diverse characters from diverse backgrounds? So if you have a second, um, jot down a few ideas uh, if you're at home. Awesome. Yeah, and I can continue writing while you all do the interview. And I, I actually started thinking about that prompt a little bit because I got a preview. And I was thinking it's so important to have heterogeneous representation of homogeneous cultures. Mm. And so what I love most about Lamar Giles is his multiplicity in representing the characters in his books beyond uh, anything we've ever seen before. So I'm going to bump it over to you. You guys have a great interview and we'll be back. Yeah. All right. All right, Lamar, are you there? I am there. So or I'm here. <laughs> You're there everywhere. Yeah, yeah. So I want to dive right in uh, because I'm just so excited to get a chance to chat with you, right? Um, I want to talk about, um, you are the current co-founder of We Need Diverse Books in all caps, might I add. <laughs> um, so for you as an author, maybe for you as a man, for you as a person, right? All the things that make you you, why is it important uh, to you for your audience to have books that they may be able to see themselves in? Well, I think part of it has to do with growing up, like probably many, many people across the country, reading books that were strictly about white children and growing up in a neighborhood where I'm black, my friends are black, our school has a relatively mixed population. There's all sorts of people from everywhere, yet every book seems to be about not only a white kid, but like a British white kid. It was weird. And the truth is, it was discouraging because I grew up someone who loves story. And in the beginning, I can remember early on, everybody loving story time. The teacher will read us some book from Dr. Seuss that's about talking animals. Everybody loves that. Then the books start to shift to people. And you still like the story, but it's starting to get weird because, again, you're dealing with all these kids who are from places you're not from who don't look like you. And I was one of the few that latched on the story and continued, but I could just about track my friends dropping off as the years went by. All of a sudden, reading's dumb. They don't understand why I'm doing it. They don't understand why I like those white boy books. It's, it's that sort of reaction I'm getting from just trying to keep on reading and enjoying the things I loved as a kid. And it becomes a point where I'm getting a little bit bitter. And I don't know if I want to hang in reading. And then I happen to stumble across Walter Dean Myers. And then I start to discover um, Tanana Redu and Stephen Barnes. And these are books that are older than what I probably should have been reading at the time. But then it's Terry McMillan. And it's Eric Jerome Dickey. And I'm seeing like there are Black people out there working, but I wish I knew more of them when I was younger. And that's why it's important for me to not only have that experience with Black kids, but any child. And that's what we try to do when we need diverse books. 
I love that you um, you mentioned how how you um, your friends and little black boys needing to see themselves in books. I have a two year old. Um, who I know all moms think their kids are super smart, but like he really is kind of smart. Like, uh, and so I've made it my duty to buy him lots of books, but I try to buy him books, especially um, with books from people from very like diverse cultures, you know, um, but doing very, very um, astute things, right? So um, one one little boy wants to be an astronaut. Uh, one little boy wants to be president um, and so on and so forth. Because in my opinion, personally, not, not only as a mother, but as a teacher, you, in some cases, most cases, you need to see it in order to be it. Yeah, um, yeah. So when we talk about bringing in those diverse uh, texts, um, I do think it's important to highlight that it can go both ways, right? Because someone who may not come from a very diverse background may have no idea what it's like well they won't probably have any idea what it's like to be a little black boy in you know Brooklyn or in Atlanta or Connecticut or anywhere right but if you read a book about a little black boy from Connecticut from Texas from you know from anywhere overseas right or anywhere here with us right it opens their eyes to new experiences um so that's one of the things I wrote down um when I was jotting down some ideas for our writing prompt um it kind of lets you cross over a little bit and get a glimpse because you would never know what it's like but to get a glimpse a little bit about what that's like that, that was Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop point with the whole windows and mirrors things, books as windows into other people's lives and mirrors of your own experience. And I just, you know, growing up, it was just all windows into other kids' lives. And um, I'm happy that, you know, we're getting more books uh, that are mirrors for kids who didn't have those when they, when they were like my age. Yeah. Uh, and, then, and then, and that's good because then the white children can look into other people's lives too. And, and, I think develop a stronger sense of empathy at an earlier age when you can recognize other cultures, read about them positively and absorb the idea that there are people who are different than you and that's okay. Right, right. The county that I teach for, um, that is the gong that they bang um, um, throughout. I mean, every every PD, every everything that we do, and and, and every instruction that we offer, they they um, tell they they tell us about the windows and the mirrors and how we can use them to empower our children. Um, so I'm very thankful to work in a place like that. Um, so in the Ford of Fresh Ink, um, you write, uh, you have a quote here that really caught my attention. Um, and I want to read it to you. And I want to read it to our audience um, because I think that it, there's something there. And you kind of talked about it a little bit, um, but I think there's something deeper there that, that we should discuss. So you write, uh, what changed? And again, I took this out of context because it was um, a little lengthy and I, I was wanted to be time conscious, but you write, what changed? It became pretty freaking clear that book after book, adventure after adventure the heroes the heroes weren't like me at all I mean black boys more often than not if I ran across a character who shared my race and gender in a book he was a gross stereotype comic relief token side token sidekick or depending on the genre there to die so the real hero could fight another day so to put it plainly, I mean, you said a mouthful, but can you expound upon this idea and how we've kind of gotten here in the literary world when the world is so diverse? There's so many diverse readers, so many diverse writers. How did we get here with these stereotypes being implemented in literature in today's time still? Um, well, I mean, I think that the, the most grim answer is there's a bit of white supremacy um, that proliferated this from 
decades and decades and decades ago. I mean, maybe even centuries. And I don't think it's necessarily continued to be that malicious, at least not for everyone in publishing, but I think there have been blinders for many years in publishing where the people who make the choices as to what books to buy, what books to publish, what books to market, their blind spots have kept out everyone else. And in their eyes, the gatekeepers, the stories that I described are the best stories. They're just the way things are. I think a lot of people thought like that for a long time. I mean, I think about my own publishing journey. When I was trying to break into this industry, my novel, Fake ID, when we took that out on submission, the gatekeepers, the people who could purchase the book, publish it, and market it, rejected it all over the place. And it was never about my writing. The rejections would literally say, you know, great story, great writing. However, we have someone that does what you do already. Which wasn't true at all because I could look at their catalog and see it wasn't they had someone that did what I did. They already had a black person. They had a black. Mm. And so publishing for a long time existed with if we have one person of this and one person of that and one person of this, we could have a whole roster of white, straight, Christian authors. And we've done our job. Or we're not even aware that we're excluding an entire group of potential readers. Um, so that, in a nutshell, I think that's how we got to the place where the stories proliferated so many stereotypes. Now, their gatekeepers are becoming a bit more diverse, or some of the more diverse gatekeepers have gotten more power. The reason I even sold my first novel was because of an editor named Phoebe Yate, who's at Penguin Random House. Um, she was at a different publisher at the time, but she's someone who gave me a shot. This is an editor who also signed LNO, who's a co-founder of We Need Diverse Books and a fantastic Korean American fantasy author. This is an editor who also signed Kwame Alexander, who would go on to win the Newberry and does all sorts of fantastic things. Right. Um, this is an editor who used to edit Walter Dean Myers. That's one editor. So, I mean, you have to ask the question, like what's going on with everybody else? Right. And not to say that there aren't other editors who opened the door for some of the talent we've seen, but I think too many editors just didn't even realize there was other talent out there. Interesting, interesting. Now, I know you hit on um, the, the art of just really them not being aware, but when they are aware, what, what are they afraid of? What, what do you suspect they might be afraid of um, when it comes to taking a risk on an author with a more diverse background? Um, even because if you think about it, the genre that we're speaking on specifically tonight is uh, regarding, you know, young adults, you know? So what could happen if, what's the worst that could happen if our textbooks, if our um, Y books became more diverse and they are becoming more diverse, um, what could happen? Well, like, I think there's, again, two sides to it. There's a malicious side and where there are some people who just feel like we don't need to do that. It's not important. The stories we've been telling are the important stories. Um, this, this is um, PC nonsense. This is, you know, uh, woke nonsense. There are people who think like that. And some of those people make decisions. And then I think there are people who either out of ignorance or simply out of maybe even fear for their career. Right. Think it's taking a big swing to take a chance on something they think is unproven. There's decades of history that we can sell these same stories from these authors that look the same over and over. However, when we publish these other authors, the books don't sell. Mm -hmm. 
And it's a funny self-fulfilling prophecy because you go through it where people will say your book's not selling, but they're also not marketing it. Right. You, you, when you see a book break big, I almost guarantee you've seen some stellar marketing leading up to that book publishing. This is true. Yet and still, you'll have publishers acquire books. And I've been through this. They don't help the author at all. Hmm. It's not necessary. And it, it, it's like no individual to blame there because you're talking about publicists and marketers who are overwhelmed. Maybe they're working with 50 different books and they've been given a directive from somebody else that this is the book you need to spend the most time on and everything else gets a uh, you know short shrift. But when you hear that, you know, we will publish more, but they don't sell. It's like, what are you doing to even make people aware of them? Because authors only have so much power. And certainly we have to play some sort of role in our marketing. We have to get out there. You have to get over whatever you're scared of. You have to be able to public speak. You have to go on the road when that was a thing. Right. But your resources are never going to be the same as the corporations. And if the corporations already set in their mind that you're not someone who's going to sell, it's going to be hard for you to sell. I just want to take the time to thank you for sharing even some of these, the back end of your publishing experience, because in my mind, I know like even when I'm writing just for myself or with the Kennesaw Mountain Writing Project, um, I am like, it's good. It's going to, it's, I'm going to publish it. People are going to buy it. It's going to be great. Um, and even my, like my little personal pro project that I'm moving to like self-publish, I'm like, this is going to be great. And people are going to love it because it's good work, you know, um, in my mind. But I see you smirking like how naive right now. But um, <laughs> no, I, I was actually smiling because you mentioned self-publishing. I self-published initially because <laughs> I'd, I'd made up in my mind, I wasn't going to let some stranger in some city I don't live in, someone far away, decide my fate. I was frustrated with the way my publishing experience was going. And you know, it messes with your head because if you're trying to publish traditionally and you keep getting rejected, you kind of got to ask, am I just not good enough? Yes, yes. And you know, that, that that's, a, that's a possibility, but you also may have a sense that my story is good. These stories I've written are good. And if this person's not going to take a chance on it, I have options. And so I was just, I was smiling because I've been there. I know that particular path and I wish you well on it. Um, I think it's important to learn about all sides of publishing, the self-publishing side and the traditional side. So I really do wish you well on that. Thank you, I appreciate that. Um, that kind of segues a little bit into my next question a little bit. Um, so as a classroom teacher, you know, we teach the craft of writing, um, the, the writing, process, we, we go into, um, you know, why it's important to write, uh, so on and so forth. And we do our best to encourage young writers, both reluctant <laughs> and those who are very willing, right? Um, but I know the mantra that I push is just get it on paper first, get your ideas on paper, okay? Then we'll go back and make it pretty, right? I tell them that we'll make it pretty later. I just want your ideas right? Um, so I wanted to ask you, because it seems like you've got so much experience in this, and even your own personal experience, it, it, it appears very valuable, um, at least to me, right? Um, what advice do you have for young writers who may be reluctant to uh, write, or even on the contrary, um, some writers who are very eager to write, right? Or who are looking like you, maybe a, a young uh, boy or girl who's interested in, in writing and possibly publishing and, and moving into that world. What, what advice do you have for both parties? Well, I, I, I wanna take some advice from a writer I admire, Stephen Barnes. And he said this, and, and I think 
sometimes this gets lost in the way in modern publishing work because you don't hear as much about short fiction. But his recommendation was something I took to heart when I was very young, which is write short stories first. Mm -hmm. Because you can write a short story a week and you'd have 52 short stories at the end of the year in the same amount of time it might take you to start a novel and never finish it. And in the repetition of writing short stories, you get a quick lesson in beginning, middle, and end. And I think what he, I, I don't want to misquote him, but I think he said something along the lines of it's impossible to write a hundred bad short stories. Okay. You know, meaning that if you keep doing it, if you keep repeating this process, you're going to improve. Whereas you may not seem to see the same jump in skill if you're spending your time jumping into a novel first. And not to say you can't work on a novel too. Right. But I think people have kind of gotten away from the experience of writing short fiction. And that's where I cut my teeth to this day. Um, and it's, it's still something I enjoy. Like anytime I get an invite for an anthology, unless something is going on, that's going to mess with the schedule and I can't do it. I almost always say yes, because it's a skill I want to keep. Yeah. So my recommendation is try writing some short fiction and setting a deadline for yourself. Don't take more than a week. Write a short story. Go on to the next. I love that. And is that your advice for both the reluctant and the eager? Well, yes, but I'll say this. I say this too, like, I would wonder, I would want to talk to the reluctant reader more to understand what, I mean, reluctant writer more to understand what they're reluctant about. Because I'm also very much a person of, you don't have to do this. Like, yeah, you have to write for school and you want to make sure you do your school assignments, but I'm big on not forcing people to do things they really don't want to do. And so if, if they're reluctant and it's beyond just a school assignment, I don't want to know why, because if there's something, some, it, even if it's another art or just something else they're into, I would rather encourage that than force someone to try to write things they really don't want to do. Sure, sure, sure. No, I, um, I hear you on that. I know there are certain projects, writing projects uh, of my own, like certain writing territories that I am reluctant to explore because I'm like, I'm scared, you know, mm -hmm. it's either going to be like really good or it's going to be really bad <laughs> or it might, or it might be, it might be mind blowing. It may be, you know, it may be breakthrough material. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I don't know if you feel this. I feel it like even in areas I'm familiar with, I still feel like this is going to be the time I mess it up. <laughs> and it's like, I, I never feel confident in any project Wow. In, in, until, until I am. At right. some point, I've done the revision, I've done the work, and I'm like, okay, this is decent. But I always feel terrified, no matter what. And I've been doing this, honestly, for like 30 years. Yeah, wow. Yeah. I, what I, one thing that, I, that comes to mind is this uh, old Jay-Z song. He says, I can't see it coming down my eyes, so I got to make this song cry. Mm -hmm. Really good song. Got to go back to yeah. that. But it's like, I can't sometimes articulate what I need to say as a writer, but... I can write it. I can put mm -hmm. it on paper, you know, and I re I can recall sometimes with my reluctant writers, they are not always the most outspoken. They're not always the one to share out their feelings, but gosh, that, the work, the work that they put in, in, in what they write when they do finally pick up the pen or the pencil, you know, is, it's amazing work. It's amazing work. And, um, you know, something I found too, and I mean, it's, if it's a message that helps them, like sometimes you have to write 50 lines to get that one good one. And, and, and so like, I can understand too, if the reluctance is I'm writing, this doesn't feel right. It's not coming out right. 
Um, I had that experience today working on a project that I have due in February where I'm writing for most of the afternoon. It doesn't feel right until I get to the last line of the section. Wow. I may have to go back and rework that beginning, but I'm like, okay, this is what I was trying to get to. I couldn't figure it out before, but now that I have this bit, I can fix the rest. Yeah, yeah. So you've already like kind of dipped your toe into my next question. And um, I always, I'm always kind of like reluctant to ask this, but whenever I speak to other writers, I really have to ask them, like, I hope you don't find it intrusive or anything, um, but it always, it always piques my interest. Can you tell me like a little bit about your writing process? Like what goes into these masterpieces you're pumping out? And I know like, you know, you're saying like, I don't always know, I don't, you know what I mean? But what goes into all that you're putting on this paper, right? Well, I can speak to the daily process and I can speak to like what I think really makes it good. The daily process is just really forcing myself to sit down every day and say, hey, I'm gonna try to write five pages. I mean, it's that simple. Um, and almost every day I don't wanna do it, which is interesting, right? This is my job. I'm supposed to do it. I've done it for most of my life, but almost every day I'm intimidated by the idea of sitting down and dealing with this blank page. Wow. And I would say in the first draft, probably 70% of it isn't that good. So if, if you've enjoyed something I've written, and I always tell this to young writers, understand that you're reading like the sixth draft. Wow. And to me, that's where it gets good. It gets good in the revision. Every single revision improves it. And so I have to just remind myself as I'm going through this first and second draft and I'm not really feeling it, that that's not the end. That's not the one you all are going to see. And that's the case that I think all writers should know. Like you don't have to show people your first and second ugly drafts. They get better as you fix things. And so that's my process. I force myself to fight this intimidation every day. And when I have a draft done, I recognize, I know most of it's not going to be good and I fix it in later draft. So when um, when I was kind of going through the Kennesaw Mountain writing um, process, I, I kind of, well, one thing that I really benefited from was that other writers were able to look at my work, right? So I would say, listen, I wrote this poem. Like, can you just look at it and tell me what you think? Is there anyone that you have who like looks over your work, your first and second ugly draft, or maybe your third draft that you're like, all right, this is going good. Before you send it to the publishing, do you send it to someone else? Or do you just say, here it is, you know? Like, how does that go? No, I, I do have people. And, and I'm going to say not all the time because sometimes I'm running so close to a deadline that I just have to go to the editor first and get sort of like like patch, I call them patch notes, like like little advice from my friends. But yeah, it's all sorts of people that have helped me out. Like um, my, my really good writer friends include Nick Stone, um, Tiffany Jackson, Meg Medina, um, Danielle Clayton. Um, they have been helpful to me, Jason Reynolds. They've read stuff for me in the past and I will read for them as time allows. And so those people help me out in addition to like my wife and my agent um, yeah. before it gets to the editor. So there's a, there's a small group of people I can go to if I really need some help. And like I said, a lot of times it just depends on timing. And, yeah. um, you know, like, like we're all running on different deadlines and sometimes they're, my friends are running on deadlines where they can't get the manuscript out to us for feedback before it goes to the editor. But your editor, we all work with great editors too. And so you also recognize that if you just go into the editor, you're still going to get some good feedback that you can work with. Right. Yeah. As a teacher, one of the things that I, I mean, first, this is first day of school criteria. I mean, I'm like, this is a safe space. 
this is a safe space, right? Um, so, so what we write in here, it stays in here if you'd like to share it. Um, if you want to not share it, if you want to push it out further, this is a safe space for us to look into doing that, right? Um, I, I just think it's so important for us when you're cultivating young writers for them to know that they have safe spaces to explore things. Um, I'm doing an argument unit in my class right now and I'm like, okay, pick a, pick a topic that you are interested in, that you feel passionate about. Um, that's what you'll be writing your argument on. And of course, I, my babies, they're so uh, eager and sweet, but they're like, you know, anything I can write about, anything? I'm like, yeah, anything. I'm like, but what if it's controversial? I'm like, I want you to write about that. This is a safe space. I'm not, and I told them this word for word. You can ask them. I said, I, I'm not here to judge whether or not you're right or wrong. I'm here to help you write a solid argument. You know, that's what I'm here to help you do. I think, and I think it's lovely that you allow them the freedom to write about whatever they want. Uh, I'm such a huge proponent of writing what you want and reading what you want. I think there's no easier way to, to kill creativity than to tell someone the thing they want to do is somehow not possible or is less than what you want them to do. Um, it reminds me of a conversation I had one time with someone who was trying to steer some young readers away from graphic novels. I'm like, let them read. If that's what they want to read. Let them read. I'm yeah. like, it's all, they're all books. They're all literature. They're all valid. And if you're telling them the thing they like to read isn't the thing they should read, that's the easiest way to stop them from reading anything. Amen. It's like you're in the, it's like you're in the classroom with me. Like, honestly, that, mm -hmm. that is it. My reluctant readers, I always go to a graphic novel um, or, I mean, even sometimes I find that students who are very stuck in one genre of writing, they might get burnt out. So mm -hmm. I may say like, you know what, you might be into sci-fi, but I want you to try this sports novel or, you know what I mean? Like, just no. read for me. And I think that's fair. Like, if you're allowing them to read some of the stuff they want to read, I don't think there's anything wrong with encouraging branching out. And I'll say this to anyone who's listening, particularly if you're an aspiring writer. I think my skill took a huge leap when I started reading things that were beyond what I typically like to read. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, whether that be nonfiction, whether it be like different genres, because growing up, all I wanted to read was scary books. I just wanted to read the horror novel. I wanted to be right. Stephen King. And nothing, and, and nothing wrong with that. I love Stephen King's books to this day. Um, they were there for me when I couldn't find other books. But when I started to read beyond the genre, I felt my skill take massive leaps, understanding how information is presented in different contexts, not just to scare people. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that that's good um, for, that's that's really good for some, some adults too, right? Um, and even um, maybe, adults in both reading and writing, you know, because I'm an adult writer, but I'm also an adult reader. Um, and I tend to enjoy reading more like historical fiction type things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but I have become a more adamant reader with a little bit of YA um, as well when I have the time, <laughs> when grad school is not sucking all my time away. Um, yep. You know, um, but but I just said all that to say, you know, if you always read what you've always read, you, you kind of will become the master at that. But yeah. then- that's it. You know? well, and and what, what I found for myself was when I was just reading the stuff I liked most, everything was sort of derivative of that. Right. I couldn't really find a voice that I felt was my own and original voice until I could kind of borrow from all sorts of things and craft out something different. 
Right. So, um, like I said, any anybody's out there listening, and like what I do now, um, I pay attention to all the the, the various um, books to read this month list that come out from different magazines. Like I, I pay attention to what's new, and I look for things that aren't usually what I would read. Still, um, sometimes it's hit or miss. I mean, I can't even lie to you and say that everything I start reading, I finish. I get distracted and move on to other things if it's not holding my attention. But I do try. And, and most often than not, several times a month, I'll discover something that's like, I would never have picked this up on my own, but it's very cool. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny you say that. Um, I had a student ask me um, in class the other day, they were like, um, Ms. Jacobs, are you still reading that book that you told us about? It was, I forget, I, I forgot the book because um, that's how quickly I'll go through them right um, but <laughs> I was like no no I I, um, I stopped reading and they were like oh, you're supposed to finish the books you start and I'm like no 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 you don't have to you don't have no, to it's no. a free country if it not, but then I used that right when they were writing their argument we were talking about hooks right like how to get your reader engaged you know I'm like y'all know Miss Jacobs will put down a book really quick okay so you've got to engage me Okay, you got to engage your audience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, literally, they know all they have to do is mention pumpkin spice latte, and I am engaged. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I'm kidding, but I'm just saying, you know, um, I, I try to relate that, you know, real life things to their writing because, like, that's important. You need to know that. Um, but I, but I, I really like that you, even that even you kind of, you know, repeated that same thing. You know, sometimes they just it's not going where I think it's going, and you know, I need to use my reading time to maybe explore something else, and that's okay too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, it's perfectly fine. Sometimes it happens that way. Right, right, right. Um, so how can I just want to get your opinion, kind of like you are writing these masterpieces that, and I, I call them masterpieces. because That's what I feel. Thank like. you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, no, you're welcome. But how can teachers in the classroom use your novels to engage young readers? And I mean, when I mean, say young readers, I mean, all readers, the ones that love to read, the ones that don't, the ones who mm are in between, you know, how can, and I kind of want to make this a two-folded question. How can we use this to engage young readers and young writers? Because I think we dabbled in this a little bit, but but I want to be very direct in that, you know, um, with, as teachers, we have a lot of power, right? Because we are speaking to these young minds day in, day out. We're spending during the school year more time, more physical, well, virtually or face-to-face time, right, uh, with them than they may be spending at home with, you know, their friends or family. So so I want to kind of talk about, about a little bit how you kind of maybe envision your books being used in the classroom. Um, well, I mean, I'll take a specific novel, for example, and I'll do Not So Pure and Simple, which was my contemporary that came out in January of this year. So that's a book I built specifically to start discussions about toxic masculinity and misogyny, um, things of that nature, homophobia, um, religion. And my thinking is, but it's a funny book. And so one way I imagine, I hope, and I, and I wanted to be in classrooms in schools this year helping with this, but because of the way the world is right now, I couldn't. But what I hope was that students would be drawn in by the humor Right. And the teachers could lean on that and then say, well, what are you laughing at? What's Dell doing in this book? Have you ever done that? Did you find it funny when you did it? And then when the book takes a bit of a turn, say, hey, is it still funny? Because it, it, it shouldn't be. And have you thought like this? And have you thought it was okay? Because we've all been taught very wrong things about how to socialize. And I would hope 
that would lead to discussions of the things that are happening in their real life. Um, I always say like putting that bit of subtext in under the humor is like mixing medicine with ice cream. I'm giving it to you in a way that's easy to digest, but then we got to think about what's it really doing. <laughs> and, and, and that's what I was hoping for with that book. I'm not going to say every single book was necessarily that heavy because the middle grade books are meant to just be zany fun. And I think the way teachers might engage there is to tell, talk about some of the stories behind how the book was crafted, um, which, you know, you, you, if you had me zoom into your classroom, I could bring that up or there are interviews out there you could watch with the kids. Um, the same deal with the mysteries. Um, the stories behind them sometimes I think get students on board a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, so, I mean, I, as we wrap up, you know, I just wanna say, you know, thank you so much for having the vision that you do for, for what you write. Um, because there are teachers who need ways and need texts. Um, even myself, I was looking for a certain type of text, but I needed it to be safe. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and, and I say that um, with like air quotes, because I don't want it to be too safe, right? Yeah. But I want it to be safe where I can keep my job. No, I'm kidding, but I'm not. Um, and so <laughs> I want to thank you for, for having the vision for your text, uh, for having the courage to write it, because as a writer, like I told you, it takes, not only does it take courage to write it, but it takes courage to share it, right? There's some things I've written, no one's ever going to Okay, uh, mm -hmm. because it's just too personal for me, right? But um, I, I just want to thank you for that. And then I want to thank you for taking the time to sit down and chat with little old, old, old me um, and, and, and the rest of us, honestly, um, because I mean, I just think you're a phenomenal guy and I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, no, thank you. It was a wonderful conversation. It was a pleasure. Uh, before Kirsten gets to the last, the last writing prompt, um, I work fast, Lamar, maybe you know that or don't know that I, I texted Phoebe and I was like, okay, so Lamar has this thing for short stories. And I, it's actually my favorite genre. And I'm always like, we don't have enough modern short stories for our classrooms to teach kids. Like if you have a really good short story, you can teach them to be a really good writer, but the story has to be awesome. And I was thinking, man, we need an anthology of like really great writers putting out some awesome sauce in the short story novel right now. And she, she just texted back. I, she goes, I can't wait to work with Lamar again. So <laughs> I love Phoebe. I love Phoebe. Yeah, that was a great shout out. That was awesome. Yeah, a great interview. But go on, give us the last writing prompt. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so as we wrap up, um, I want us to kind of take some time to reflect. I think that uh, if you feel like me, you have like so many things you want to talk about, things you want to do, maybe things you might want to explore, um, more questions you may have. Um, so I want us to close out in true uh, writing project fashion with a reflective writing prompt. I want you to craft and create a haiku that captures our time spent today. It can reflect something that you maybe learned today, something that you want to know more about, or it can be something you want to know more about, or maybe something you want to share with us. Um, just remember that haikus uh, have, they have three lines. The first line is five syllables. The second line has seven syllables. And then the third line has five syllables. All right, so if you're looking to wrap up and reflect, um, I suggest a reflective haiku. That is fantastic. <laughs> I knew the prompt and I should have written one while I was listening, but I was so taken up in the conversation that I didn't even think about it. Brian's probably writing one right now. While he does that, I wanna thank you, Kirsten, for uh, great preparation, great questions, and a great conversational style that really pulled a whole lot of information about 
Lamar's process and his thinking about publishing and uh, the books that we need in schools, all of that got covered in a really exciting conversation. And Lamar, I mean, it started when you had baby, baby Yoda, and then you talked about Rudine Sims Bishop and PBA and Stephen King. I'm from Bangor, Maine. So like you covered all the bases. I'm so thankful. Um, before we go, I never do this, but I there's one follow-up question I was dying to ask. So if you don't mind. Sure. I thought um, well, all the things you said about your writing process were so resonant for me as a, as a writer. And I felt like there's one question that, um, because you were so clear about avoiding the chair every day <laughs> or wanting to, and how much you write that you throw away and how many drafts it takes. And so the one question I'd love to hear you answer about that is how did you know to keep coming back at the beginning? Sure, the, the way I knew to keep coming back was I was, I, I, I'd written as a teen, but didn't really see a path to a career. But I was finishing up college. I was going out, I had a job. I was a corporate guy for many years okay. and I hated it absolutely hated it from day one, but I knew I had to be a responsible adult, make a living, keep a roof over my head. And I'm like, but this is hard. It's hard to get up and go to work at this job every day. And I've always been told that publishing is hard. And my thinking was, if the thing I'm doing is hard, the thing I want to do is hard, I got to put some energy into the thing I want to do. And so I decided to put my best energy into publishing and I will get up at five o'clock every morning. I did this for 10 years and would write until about 7.30 when I had to get ready to go to work at the corporate job that I hated. And just, it was one of those things where it started to keep me sane because even though I would be intimidated by the white page and I didn't know that I would ever break through, it was, it felt like I was working towards something as an antidote to this toxic poisonous job that I hated. And so it was a counterbalance and it just, I didn't, I didn't know that I would ever, ever get through. I mean, and if I hadn't, I'd probably still be going through the same process because at the very least, I could go to that job in the morning and say, I tried something else and I'm going to keep trying. I knew that was worth asking. No, that was a good answer. Thank <laughs> you so much. Here's Thank my you. haiku. Ready? Yes, Brian has a haiku. Oh, uh, no, I lost it. Together we write, listening to magic. Thank you, Lamar Giles. But actually, thank you, Kirsten J. <laughs> thank you both. Tanka. <laughs> thank you no problem this is truly uh just fed my spirit on so many levels thank you you so two much. could take this on the road you could you could kind of like be together could. and like people would be like oh this is good yeah <laughs> that is definitely true uh it's always my final job after thanking you for such a lovely conversation that you invited us into to thank listeners who were here with us as well and to remind you that this um, is hosted by the National Writing Project. And if you liked it, you should make sure to sign up for the NWP. Go to nwp.org and sign up for our newsletter so that you can know about more such opportunities. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We're in all the places and we would love to see you there. Thank happy you. Holiday, happy holidays. Happy Kwanzaa. Happy Hanukkah. Happy everything you celebrate and especially a happy new year. We'll, we'll be seeing you all in January. Ah, let us look forward to 2021 together. Thank you all. You're listening to NWP you. Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP.
Dougie, 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 Dougie,